Welcome, tennis fans, to KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, featuring International Tennis Hall of Famer, former world number one Mats Vlander, and Texas Longhorn all-time great, two-time All-American Johnny Levine. Your host of KickServeRadio.com is Andy Zoden. So, take it away, AZ. And take it away, I will. Thank you very much, Sarah Z. You are listening to KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. And of course, as you know by now, we are joined by seven-time Grand Slam champion, International Tennis Hall of Famer, former number one in the world, Mats Vlander. We are joined by one of the great Texas Longhorns of all time, newly minted Texas Longhorn Hall of Honor inductee, Johnny Levine. Boys, great being with you in this fall season, and we've got a lot to get to tonight. Wayne Ferreira is going to join us a little later in the show, and I want to know what the secret sauce has been between he and Francis TFO, because we saw TFO really end the season in, in great fashion, getting to the semis of the U.S. Open, leading Team World to their first ever victory in the Labor Cup, and of course, uh, the great matches with he and Jack Sock against Federer and Nadal and the amazing match that uh, that Francis played to close out the Labor Cup against Stefanos Tsitsipas. But before we get to that, guys, and I'm going to start with you, Matt. We talked a little bit in the last show. We touched on the McEnroe documentary. And part of what we didn't get to had a lot to do with John's relationship with Bjorn Borg and ultimately Borg's premature retirement from the sport of tennis. And it seemed like he really became frustrated with the fact that he couldn't beat McEnroe at the U S open lost to him at Wimbledon lost to him at the open left without even accepting a second place trophy. But Matt's one of the things that they touched on indirectly was that it seemed that, that the price of fame really ultimately in my mind, was Borg's undoing, that he really couldn't deal with the demands of the rock star fame that he had inadvertently created for himself. Do you agree or disagree that that was ultimately his biggest weakness? Yeah, I'm not sure uh, if he if the right way to say it is that he couldn't deal with it. I think okay. he decided that he didn't want to deal with it. Um, I think that he, he had a a couple of rough years in Sweden for some reason with the with the Swedish press. I don't exactly know. I was a little too young to know exactly what transpired early on. But but he finally decided to never play in Sweden again. Didn't play Davis Cup. Uh, didn't play the Stockholm Open. And in those days, Stockholm Open was actually one of the sort of today's ATP 1000 tournaments. So it was huge. Uh, he eventually won the Stockholm Open because that was frustrating too. He lost to Mackinac a couple of times. So Borg won that, and I think that was a big win for him. But I think that he, like you said, inadvertently uh, inherited this fame that I don't think we had never seen it in tennis before. With the long hair and the way that he looked, the way that he behaved on the court, I think that he it was completely unintentional. I mean, he wasn't trying to, to, to attract any attention. So I do think you're you're right that he had a problem with John McEnroe, but I think Borg is, is bigger than that in his in being a competitor, that I do think that in the end, I don't think he just didn't want to deal with the fame. And remember, in those days, I mean, the guys are famous today. Roger Federer is unbelievably famous. But I'm telling you, there is no chance that they were more famous than Bjorn Borg in those days. He could literally not walk down the street 
Why that was, I think, because it was shown on the biggest networks in every country in those days. And today, you have to search a little bit for for tennis in certain countries. So I think Borg, uh, yeah, inadvertently became too famous. I agree. I want to talk about how you all have dealt with it in your own way. But before we get to that, Johnny... I let, you know, Matt's handle sort of the Swedish side of this equation, if you will. And I'm going to let you handle the American side of this equation, because in the McEnroe documentary, of course, if they're talking about fame and Bjorn Borg as well, they're talking about fame and Vitas Gerolitis. And those were those were McEnroe's running buddies. And I would say that fame had. Uh, the opposite effect on Vetus's career, he soaked it up. He drank it up. He loved it. And he seemed to allow the fame to elevate his game and to sort of become, um, you know, a, create a tailwind for him. Did you see the same thing with him? It didn't seem like his game was necessarily reflective of the results. It seemed like he kind of outkicked his coverage a little bit. Here's Johnny. Yeah, I mean – Matts would know obviously better than me, but Vetus Gerolitis, he really did have some big time results, but not of the likes of the of the Connors and the Lendels and the Borgs. But he was just right outside those guys and he ate up the fame. And, you know, he was a very outgoing, charismatic personality. And I think he enjoyed the spotlight, unlike Bjorn Borg. And we all know that Vetus liked to party and have a good time and Studio 54 in those days and, you know, had a lot of good friends and female friends and was having a lot of fun out there. So I think the lifestyle fit him really well. But the way I looked at the Borg situation, retiring early and young like that, and I I look at it a little differently. And and this is just my perspective and my my opinion. I, I think that, you know, Borg had dominated for so long, winning the French and winning Wimbledon. Um, all those times. And the the Australian really wasn't a big factor at that time. But that U.S. Open was the one that he just didn't have. And that was the one he wanted. And he was very close. And I think the tide was turning uh, in his last year and a half, maybe to two years, where McEnroe was really had his number uh, at the end there. And I, and I, I just, I don't think he felt that at the end that, that he was ever going to beat McEnroe because McEnroe really uh, started to have his number. He beat him at Wimbledon and such. And so I, I think, you know, his last goal in tennis was to win that open. And when he, when in my mind, I just don't think he thought he could do that. I think he was tapped. And I think that ended his career. Um, I'm really interested to, to to get Matt's perspective on that take. Well, before we do that, though, I, I want to uh, I want to talk to you, Matt, about you know the the effect that it had on you because it seems like it started with Borg, and it seems like a lot of the Swedes, if if really not all of them, yourself and Edberg and Bjorn in particular, were all somewhat understated personalities. You guys were not boisterous and boastful you you seemed like you kind of were a little bit more on the introverted side i think among yourselves maybe it was very different but there wasn't a a, a lot of of demonstrative behavior in any way shape or form and that would seem counter to the kind of attention that you all receiving how did it affect you and was that year 1988 in particular kind of bittersweet and that you had the great results but all of a sudden this this huge uprising of fame it just seems like it it has to take its 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 toll in certain ways. 
Yeah, it definitely does. But I think that's also why I'm sitting here in uh, Haley, Idaho. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, the, 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 you know, there's a, obviously a huge difference between me and Bjorn Borg. But on, on paper, he won 11 slams. I won seven. I won a, three Davis Cups. He won one. So he, he's got much better results, but maybe not that much better. But in terms of fame, right. I mean, I'm not, ten, I'm, I don't have 10% of his fame. Uh, in Sweden, I do. But that's why maybe I'm not living in Sweden because I didn't really want to deal with it. And I think that's why he moved back from Monte Carlo to Sweden because he wanted to become a Swede again and he didn't want to want to face the world's media. Uh, and of course, he moved to an island outside of Stockholm where he didn't have to face the Swedish media either. So uh, I don't know if I necessarily dealt with it um, uh, well. I'm not sure. I'm still in the game. I'm not... Uh, hiding anything of any kind, and, and I'm I'm happy to to pursue my passion, which is tennis, which is talking to you guys, which is going to different charity events and and senior tournaments, whatever. But but I think that's what John McEnroe you you brought him up before. I think that's what you have to take your hat off to John McEnroe because obviously uh, John, when he was at his best, there were people that maybe didn't think that his behavior was 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 all that cool. I mean, it was cool, but in a different rock and roll kind of way. Obviously for him, it could have been easier to walk away and sort of never have to talk about or to these people that maybe disliked some of what he did on a tennis court. But because of his passion for the sport, um, he is one of the most respected uh, uh, people in tennis or that we've ever had. I mean, uh, uh, Pete Sampras is not around, which is kind of strange because he had a g- great reputation. Jimmy Connors is not around, and obviously he was uh, respected as a competitor. And maybe sometimes the behavior was a little uh, borderline as well, but but it was uh, overshadowed by the, his competitiveness. So I think it's very interesting. Last thing, Roger Federer could have walked away from our sport too, but he didn't when Rafa Nadal started beating him. He had won enough to not stick it out the last three or four years. But because he did, he won the Australian Open two more times. He won another Wimbledon. He beat Nadal finally in a five-set final in a Grand Slam. And that's where I think Roger Federer has to be looked upon as the most important male tennis player of all time. Hell of a good point. And definitely the guy that I was going to eventually come to and say, is this the guy that has handled that fame better than anybody? But Johnny... Uh, Matt's brings up the names Jimmy Connors. He brings up the name Pete Sampras, who are two guys that 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 handled fame very differently. But the guy that Matt's didn't mention that I would say maybe of the three of these Americans really imbe- you know really enjoyed the fame and and really reveled in it was Andre Agassi, and it was really what created his brand in the early years. And then when he learned to, it seems, put the fame in its proper place call it north of the age of 30, he still held on to it. He used it, but he he allowed it to sort of inspire him differently as an older guy. Uh, it, it really seems like he ultimately has handled his fame extraordinarily well. Yeah, Agassi did enjoy, you know, the limelight, the, the fame, uh, but he liked it. You know, when he was winning only, uh-huh. he, he he was a guy that didn't have that true love and enjoyment for the game. I mean, Roger Federer, on the other hand, is a guy that, um, you know, truly just loves the sport so much that he almost understands that losing is part of the game and he embraces it just like winning. And he knows that 
you know, you, you either win or you lose, but it's not going to affect his his love for the game and his want to play the game. Whereas Agassi really struggled. I mean, he had so, the highs and he had the lows, which really hurt him because um, I don't think he had that true enjoyment. And so if he was winning, yeah, it's all great. But the losing was very difficult for him. And you saw that he really struggled at times when he got into a funk and, and, you know, he's off the map there for a little bit, but, you know, the guy was so talented and, and Jimmy Connors once said that, you know, Agassi with eight slams, I mean, he could have been a guy with 15 if he had had a little better stability on his, you know, the way he approached the game. And uh, so that, that's how I view that differently. But look, I mean, Andre Agassi, great guy, charismatic, and um, certainly loved, loved being out in the open and, and uh, embrace that. Final word, Matt, before we go on this subject, and that is, and, and we mentioned Roger Federer as maybe being the best ever at this call it fame game. And you, you wonder if not only is trying to come up in, in the wake of Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic, going to be a tall order for all of these players from a tennis perspective, but maybe we've as tennis fans become spoiled at the way we have watched Roger and to a large degree, Rafa and Novak conduct themselves in front of a microphone that our expectations are maybe unrealistically high for this next generation of players coming up behind them. And good luck to Nick Curios and Carlos Alcaraz and Yannick Sinner in trying to match their 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 eloquence as they as they deal with the public the way they have yeah i mean really we have to nearly put those three guys aside in terms of their uh, achievements on the court and their achievements off the court i mean obviously novak uh, has had a, a rougher much much rougher time than right. and much probably than he would deserve uh, but he's become extremely famous because of it and i think a lot of people are pulling for him because he he is out there trying to do the right thing and sometimes it just doesn't come off uh, in the right way whereas roger federer it, whatever he did it seemed to be the right thing to do but uh, my last point will be compare coco golf because i think she's the one that I'm slightly, I'm not concerned about it, but I'm, I'm, I am, uh, um, I am a big admirer because of the way that she's handling herself off the court as a 17, 18, like she might've turned 18 by now. And she's doing unbelievably well, but with being that popular and being that outspoken as a young girl, as a young woman, I think that the pressure once you're on the court is completely different. And, and just look at Iga Swantek. We used to, at Eurosport, be able to do an interview with Iga Swantek whenever we wanted to, because in Poland, uh, we are the main network and she's absolutely massive in Poland. And suddenly... This year, they shut her down. The agents shut her down. And we didn't get any, uh, uh, any really nearly no chance at all to talk to Iga Swantek. Uh, but it hasn't affected her tennis. So I'm, I'm thinking that somebody is in there saying, okay, you know what? We don't want to get too big in what we say when we're not on the tennis court. Let's put all that pressure that you have for being number one in the world. Let's just have that on the court. So I'm, I'm for Coco Golf. There's pressure for her when she's on the court. There's becoming sort of expectations of her when she's just talking in general. And I think that balance is extremely hard 
to to find. And I hope Coco Golf. I hope she sticks it out. But uh, I hope that she starts winning soon because eventually there'll be a monkey on her back that is not that easy to get rid of because uh, she's going to be the one that is the most famous. But she might end up being one that didn't win as much or hasn't so far won maybe as much as we would have thought. Okay, she's really young, but um, I appreciate that she sticks her sticks her uh, uh, words out there uh, in the social issues for sure. But she most probably has to pay a little bit of a price once she's on the court because of that, I think. And we've seen how, call it mental fragility, uh, affected Naomi Osaka. And we certainly hope that Coco doesn't experience uh, something similar. All right, when we come back, we're going to talk about the career titles race. Still Jimmy Connors, you know, game to lose. I think he's at 109 all time. Roger has shut it down at 103. And of course, who would be the next two guys to talk about? You got it. Djokovic and Nadal. So when we come back, we'll talk about that. You're listening to kickserveradio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. More to come. Don't go away. AZ here, kickserveradio.com, and I'm joined by Paul Strata, and he is the developer of iPlayMeToo.com. Paul, it's a real-world tennis app for real-life scenarios. Tell us about it. Yeah, yeah, thanks, Andy. Yeah, so here at iPlayMeToo, we basically built the world's most useful tennis app for the players and for the club pros. And I think if you'd ask most players at clubs they'd like to play more if it were easy to get games to enter tournaments play in ladders so we've basically digitized all of the scheduling headache and all of the tournament and competition setup so it's as easy as ordering an uber and people can focus on playing and not trying to schedule and get a game in an advantage that you've got in the market from what I've seen is in the presentation of the results. People like seeing their name and lights. Talk a little bit about that side of the site. Clubs can run all kinds of tournaments and ladders and round robins, and the players can enter their own scores right there from their app. The players don't have to text their score to the club pro. They can actually enter it in their app. The app is iPlayMeToo, iPlayMe, the number two, dot com. The developer is Paul Strata. Paul, thank you so much, and uh, and best of luck with iPlayMeToo.com. All of us that have used it have enjoyed it very much and appreciate the hard work that you have put into it. You bet, Andy. Thanks so much. And anyone who has any questions, they can contact us at iPlayMeToo.com. Hey guys, before we get back to the show, I want to take just a moment in my role as president of the Intermountain Division of the USPTA to congratulate John Embry, Fred Viancos, and the rest of the National Office in Orlando with USPTA, as well as Rich Slovaka, who is president of the National Board, as well as the rest of the National Board members, in congratulating you guys on putting on such a great USPTA World Tennis Teachers Conference in New Orleans, September 19th through 24th. Phenomenal speakers and presentations. It was highlighted by the USPTA Hall of Fame inductions of Drs. Jack Groppel and Jim Lair. Well-deserved 
They have been stalwarts in our industry for so many years. And to see those two who are so close and have worked so closely together to help all of us help our students with their physical and mental and emotional well-being, uh, it was a beautiful thing to watch. And they both had plenty of beautiful things to say. So congratulations to Dr. Lair and Dr. Groppel. And congratulations to all of the aforementioned on doing such a great job with the USPTA World Tennis Teachers Conference in New Orleans in September. And since, as we know, the USPTA National Headquarters are uh, in Orlando at Lake Nona, we have you all in our thoughts even more so with what is going on right now uh, with the hurricane that you all are uh, in the midst of experiencing. And we want to wish you guys all the very best in health with all of that. And welcome back, everybody. KickServeRadio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. We wanted to talk, we talked at the, at the, at the, before we went to break about the, the career titles list. And right now it's sitting at Jimmy Connors with 109 lifetime. Roger Federer retires six short of that with 103. And Nadal with 92, Djokovic with 90. Johnny, I'll let you start because you were the one that posed the question, could Djokovic potentially have enough left we talk about the Grand Slam race all the time, but to your point, we don't talk about the the lifetime titles race. He's got 20 more to win before he could become, and I think at that point, there is no GOAT argument. If Novak, if Novak Djokovic gets to 110 titles, he's the man. Yeah, and it's not going to be easy, but it's definitely attainable. But gosh, when you think about 20 titles. That would take Matt's two years. Well, He's got 33 <laughs> titles yep. and that's, you know, that's a ton of titles. Um, you know, you can't forget Yvonne Lendl, who's in third place at 94. Okay. My suspicion is he's not going to catch Jimmy. No, but with, <laughs> with, with Djokovic being uh, at 90, I mean, I, I he's certainly going to pass Nadal and Lendl. Um, I, I think he's going to get there. Um, I mean, he just won two back to back, right? He won um, Tel Aviv and the, what was it, Aston? Where was it? It was over there in Europe somewhere. Better research next time, buddy. <laughs> but anyways, um, he's just you know, uh, I mean, the guy is just so solid, and 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 he and he wins so many matches, and he he plays a lot, and I think he's got a really good shot. Um, whether that defines him if he doesn't get the the you know the number of championships grand slam championships majors um but he gets the atp titles that that is an interesting question that you you know andy you think that 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 would override that but i guess if he wins 20 he's going to probably win the, a couple the, of majors the, the, along the, major the way championships. yeah yeah well i was just going to say to the point that Matz has made from the outset that we started doing this show Mats is always right there to distinguish between best of five set tournaments and best of three set tournaments. And I believe it's been kind of accepted that Novak's going to be more effective in the best of five scenario than he is in the best of three scenario. That if you're, if you're going to get Novak, you're going to get him best of three. And if he's winning 20 more titles, it ain't 19 non-majors. 
Yeah, no, and I think the thing that speaks for him is that he, I mean, he could do it on any surface. Right. Uh, and I think with Jimmy, though it's so unbelievable about Jimmy Connors is that I don't know what the percentage of titles that he won on clay, but uh, there wouldn't be that many. I know he won a U.S. Open uh, when it was held at Four Sills on clay. That's the one that's, that slipped out of Bjorn Borg's hands, actually, uh, where Jimmy beat Bjorn on clay, I believe. But uh, yeah, Nova can do it. Um, let's see. He averages five tournaments a year. Uh, and that's 20. That takes him four years. He's 35. Uh, he's going to be winning at 39 years old. I mean, it's, wow. I agree with you, Andy. If he gets there and he ties Nadal at 22, uh, or they both win another couple or whatever, then I think that would be the tiebreaker. I don't think I don't think head to head is gonna be the tiebreaker. In my book, the head to head is is relevant as long as they're playing. But at the end of the career, the head to head to me doesn't really make a difference because it's just it's just one of the many matches that they play uh is when they face each other. And that has to do with matchups and tactics and contrast of style and so on. And obviously McEnroe had Borg's number, even though Borg won way more than John in, in, in Grand Slam. And Nadal sort of had Federer's number, but Federer won more titles. Um, I think Novak has a good chance. I hope that he looks at it as a challenge. I am so impressed when I watched him play this little 250 in Tel Aviv. And you look up at the stands uh, and you realize that, oh, the back stands behind the court might have seven, eight rows maybe. Right. And then you think of the U.S. Open where it's got 60, 70 rows. And if you look at Novak, there's no difference in his demeanor. There's no difference in his coaching staff's demeanor. Goran Ivanisevic looks nervous as hell in, in Novak's first match in Tel Aviv. Uh, and I think that's the greatness of the three. And I think in the end, I think this is what's going to give Novak the title, the greatest of all time. I still believe he'll get there, but the the longer this race goes on with Federer leaving, I would be very happy to never separate the three names. And like I said, the last show, I think I did. It's not in alphabetical order to me. It's Roger, Rafa, and Novak. I mean, that, that it just comes out of your mouth, and that's it. Roger, Rafa, Novak. We'll never forget that era. I know that Johnny disagrees vehemently, but I agree with you. Why is that? I just do. I just know he does. I know him well. That being said, as I sit here and I hear these numbers that we're we're talking about, 92, 90, 94, Martina Navratilova is sitting back going, you know, I did that on a Tuesday, you know, 167 titles all time. But when when we did the show about things that will never happen again, one of the things that that we let get away from us, and I'm going to bring it up now, is that Martina Navratilova won the singles and the doubles at the same tournament 80 times. Wow. <laughs> you can't be serious, man. 80 times where she won the singles and the doubles. So when we talk about all these, you know, greatest of all time, this and that and the other, and obviously the, the women's tennis doesn't have the differentiation between, uh, uh, you know, the best of five setters and the best of, of, of three setters. But when you think about how many tournaments these guys have won. And then to think that Martinez practically lapped those guys. I, I, you know, and we just looked at, you know, Serena having her last stand and I don't know what her, what her total titles count is. Uh, I know it wasn't anywhere near 167 and, sh- and they were really the two, the Williams sisters, I think started 
on the women's side, Matt's correct me if I'm wrong, the whole sort of schedule management concept. Yeah. Right. I think that's why she's hung that both of them have hung on for, for that long. And I actually, in the beginning when they started doing it, I wasn't a big fan of it. I must say, I thought that, okay, well, you're not going to play tennis for that long. Maybe, maybe 12, 13 years max at the top of the game in those days is, is what we thought. Um, And of course, Martina was a bit of an outsider, but, but, but to be fair, Martina wasn't winning uh, very much when she, she got into her mid thirties in terms of singles grand slams. I'm not sure how old she was when she won her last one. And I should know that, but I don't, but I, I with Venus and Serena, I was like, what, why don't they just stick to tennis? Now, obviously we realized that maybe they did the, the right thing. They, they saved their bodies. They saved their, their, uh, their minds and their competitive spirit to the point where they're still walking on court at, uh, at, in their late thirties. And we still think they can win grand slams and, and they're still hanging on. And of course, Venus, he, she hasn't announced her retirement yet. I don't believe. Um, so Serena, I think she has, but it's not a definite. So, um, no schedule, um, scheduling is a big, big, big thing. And you got to play enough tournaments to not lose confidence, but you can't play, uh, uh, too few either. And that's what Bjorn Borg really suffered uh, in parts of his career is that he did not want to play more than eight or nine tournaments. And that's why he also stepped away because he didn't want to uh, sign up for those tournaments. So they made him qualify and he said, that's it. I'm done. I'm out of here. All right, Johnny, I know that you're not going to be able to be with us for the, for the Wayne Ferreira interview, but you wanted to talk before we go. And I know I'm just as normal, kind of going all over the place. Zachary Schweida won his first challenger. He is a two-time Kalamazoo winner. He has been offered the wild card at the Arizona Tennis Classic a couple of times. He's a kid with some Texas roots, but he's from California. Talk about the importance of that kid getting on the board with, you're talking about 92 wins, 90. This kid's at one right now. He's sitting at one pro tournament, but man, that's probably the toughest one to win. He won a slew of them on the... Satellite on the okay, but still, you won three or four in a row and had a really good run. But talk about this Shvida kid. Well, you know, Zach Shvida is is a kid that um, won Kalamazoo at the eighteen and unders when he was sixteen years old, and then there was like a hiatus with COVID. Uh, came back and won it again. You know, he's a very poised and measured guy. He's not a big guy. He gets a lot of balls back. He's very solid. Serves decent for for a small guy. Uh, very steady and and very doesn't beat himself. Um, good mental, um, and I think this kid is 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 got you know some potential to uh, keep advancing and get you know once he gets into the top two hundred, you know he's capable of of some upsets and and you know we'll see where he goes from here. But that was definitely a big first win for him, winning that challenger in Tiburon. There were a lot of good players in that. And a guy that's also got a long way, uh, a lot in front of him and a tailwind behind him. Another American player is Francis Tiafo. And next we'll be joined by his coach, Wayne Ferreira, who is our featured guest this week on kickserveradio.com. Looking very much forward to talking to him to find out again. We talked about it earlier, but what are some of the secrets behind what the success has been with those two? You're listening to kickserveradio.com part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. And Matt's V-Lander has Wayne Ferreira teed up for us right after this. Hi, guys. 
guys, Sarah Z here with a kick serve, quick serve with my friend and nutrition guru, Courtney Ward with Body Fuse. Courtney, as we ladies start to get, oh, shall I say more advanced or more experienced in our life, how about just body weight and body maintenance? That for me is becoming, I, I think, tougher by the day. Boy, you're not alone. And along with our sports performance line, Body Fuse also offers a full weight loss line. And we have an, a fantastic product called Purify, which kickstarts your weight loss. It's a GI detox. It's a water cut as well. So it's really great for bloating, irregularity, um, and people love it to kickstart a weight loss program. And then with that, we couple a product called Blackwall Shredded, kind of a cool name. It's a daytime thermogenic. Um, and also has a nootropic in it. It's not super high stimulant, but it's just a, a good mental focus. And it just basically kickstarts your metabolic rate. So that's a daytime thermogenic. We also offer a nighttime thermogenic called Midnight Burn. And this has melatonin and GABA as well as a thermogenic. So it kind of continues that metabolic rate uh, bump, if you will. So that these three products are, are sort of like the magic trinity. I don't want to say magic pills because there's no such thing. But midnight burn at night, blackwall shredded in the day, uh, and then purify to kind of kickstart your system and clean out your GI tracts. And in addition, purify along with the detox, it allows us to start absorbing nutrients a little bit more efficiently as well. So those three products are just a fantastic trio and very, very popular. Fantastic. And one more time, Body Fuse. BodyFuseUSA.com. Well, I'm Sarah Z. She's Courtney with Body Fuse. And now back to more tennis talk with the KickServe Radio Boys. Welcome back, everybody. KickServeRadio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Matt's AZ. And now, as promised, we bring you Wayne Ferreira, who... 15 singles titles in his own right, got to six in the world, but now is Francis Tiafo's coach. And we have seen a meteoric rise in Francis's game over the past couple of years. And Matt, I'm going to let you start the proceedings with Wayne, since you were responsible for getting this gentleman connected to us today. So why don't you get things rolling? Yeah, thank you, Andy. Yeah, it's a, such a pleasure to to have you, Wayne, uh, with us here on Kickstarter Radio. Um, obviously, I, I've known you, Wayne, and we've known each other for a long time. In fact, uh, I dabbled on the coaching circuit for a very, very short time with, with a few players. And Wayne, you were the first player that dared to take the step. And, and I didn't last long there. I know that, but, but I feel like I, it's very close to my heart to see someone that I have worked with for even if just a week or two or a month that is doing so well and is sharing the knowledge. Wayne, thank you so much. Uh, I have to say that watching... Francis Tiafo grow into the player that he has become now. Uh, and everybody is saying it. What has Wayne Ferreira? It's all Wayne, uh, Wayne's work. And, and I have to agree. I think you've done something. What is it that you have lit in Francis, you think? Is it the work ethic? Is it the focus? Is it the hunger to improve? What is it that's made him such a great, dangerous player now? Well, okay, let me go first. Thank you for having me on the show. And before I get going on that, I have to say something just quickly about my short experience that I had with Matt. I brought him on and he came and coached me. And the one day we come out to practice and Matt says to me, he says, today we're going to do cross-court down the lines. 
And I'm like, all right, I'm up for it. And he goes, you stand in one corner and you go down the line cross court. And I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, go hit one down the line, one cross court. I'm going to chase the balls. And we were out there for about an hour when I was standing in the corner and Matt was running from side to side and side to side <laughs> for about an hour. And I'm thinking to myself, is he getting a workout and practicing on his game or is it me here? But uh, I, I, it was a short period, but I had the best time. And just and also greatest respect, Matt. I love you, absolutely adore you and had great times and uh, enjoy being your friend and, you know, obviously appreciate it everything that you did for me, but just also what an amazing career you had. You, you're very, very special, man. So Thank you. we'll start with that. But um, move, moving on to my dear boy, Francis, um, it's, been, it's been a great experience for me. Um, you know, when I retired from the tour in 2004, I, uh, I didn't do anything in tennis. I, I ran a company for 12 years. Uh, I was based in water. I had nothing to do with tennis and, you know, kind of lost – Lost the, the love for the game and wanted to come back. So I started off briefly with uh, Marin Cilic for six months. And, uh, you know, it was a different experience playing with somebody who had established himself, who had, you know, had really had success. And then when Francis came along, you know, it was something that I, I've actually enjoyed because he's a, a kid that is great. He's got a lot of talent. He has a lot of ability, but was lacking a little bit of guidance uh, from somebody who had been there. And, I think I fit the profile quite well to be able to help him to give him a little bit of experience that I had had over the years that got me to where I was. And, you know, it's been good because we've we've gone through a, a lot of changes over and uh, it's been a lot of fun. And he's now starting to reap the rewards of, of his hard work. Wayne, you know, I was brought into the industry uh, with with South African um South African coaches, uh, Cliff Drysdale, and I worked for Billy Freer at Lakeway and worked closely with Gavin Forbes. And it seemed that the South African way, if you will, was a little bit of a no-nonsense approach to playing tennis. Very much a high IQ proposition. And you didn't see a lot of nonsense on the court from the players that were um, being influenced by South African coaches. When you deal with someone like Francis, who's so talented, but also likes to be so emotional on the court and, and he's got a lot of showmanship. Do you find it a little bit tricky to sort of balance how much of that you want to see him display on the court and try to get him to maybe stay in the fairway a little bit more with the way he displays his emotions? I'm not so much concerned about the, you know, having the enjoyment and, and getting the crowd going and that because that is part of, part of his personality. The problem that I had when I first started with Francis was the lack of, of heart and desire to fight in matches. You know, we went through so many periods where we would go week in and week out where if things weren't going 100% right for him, he would just throw in the towel and he wouldn't really, you know, want to fight and dig deep. And you're right. I mean, Australian South Africans, we, you know, we had this belief that you fight till the end. It doesn't matter how good or, or how well or how badly you play, you give 100% and you die. And, and, and you know, things can change and can happen. And, and this has been one thing I've really, really tried to drill in him day in and day out is the, the work on the practice courts, but more importantly, the investment out on the tennis court. Uh, I don't care uh, if he doesn't play well. I don't care what the result is uh, in some regards. Uh, it's more important for him to be able to fight right from the beginning to the end. Uh, Francis, you know, he said during the U.S. Open that he's going to try and win this tournament for Sierra Leone. So his parents come from from Sierra Leone, I believe. And we always think that, oh, he doesn't have the drive. Someone like Nick Curious, he might not have the drive. What's wrong with them? And I always try to say, well, hold on. 
It, drive is a different thing for people. So if you compare a Jesse Pegula, who everybody always talks about, her father uh, has as much money as you need and she doesn't have to do anything but she's doing it and she's i think she's third in the race right now jesse pigula which is unbelievable and then you have francis who literally come from not very much his father was the maintenance man at the jtcc tennis academy the first time i pulled up there in my motorhome and of course francis uh uh you know the drive there we ha- we cannot assume that the drive is always to win matches no matter what and that's what i was worried about francis and you just touched on it wayne that you've gotten him you believe to win matches to make winning the match the single most important thing about the performance today is that is that going to is that what's making the difference in practice as well yeah, you know, I think the problem that Francis had is that, you know, he was well taken care of when he was in his late teenage years. I mean, everyone at JTCC really took care of him and he became a little bit complacent and sort of life was became a little bit easy. You know, I think it's a very difficult to go through hardships and that and then start being given everything. It's hard to make that adjustment. But I think the worst mistake that happened was that he came out on the tour really, really well and early made the quarterfinals of the Australian Open, got to 29 in the world and felt like, yep, I've made it. I'm good. I'm done. Right. And didn't realize that, the, you know, the, you got it, there's a lot of hard work out there and the talent got him to 29, but the, the rest of it wasn't quite there. In 2018 and 19, you know, he, you know, when I started in 2019, I believe he played 33 tournaments and lost first round 17 times. Wow. And I asked, why are you playing so many tournaments? He's like, well, I kept losing, so I kept playing. So, you know, I, and, and he kept, so, but what happened was, is he, be, he just became used to losing. Right. And you'd go through a week and things weren't going so well. So he would just chuck the match and, hey, we go to the next week and we go to the next week and we go to the next week. And he just got used to losing. And I think that's along with the fact that, you know, things were easy for him. You know, he lost the perspective of what it takes to, to fight hard and work hard every day. People told me when he was a kid, he, he would die out on the court. He would fight like a dog and he would, you know, not want to lose. And, and so he has it in him. He just lost it for a while. What is it about American tennis? Because if I was to point to anything, Wayne, that I would have assumed you would have addressed with with Francis, it would have been shot selection, not necessarily the ability to fight till the very end, or maybe those two things are one and the same, because it seemed like there would be times where Francis would maybe, I don't know, maybe in sort of James Blake type fashion, take on more risk at times in matches where it might cause you to scratch your head. Have you addressed some of those situational uh, choices that he was making and having him play at a more mature, higher IQ version of himself? Yeah, I mean, definitely. But I think Francis, unfortunately, does agree to you for some degree in the sense that he would go to the drop shot a lot. And the drop shot would be hit hit at the really bad times. And the the drop shot at times was a cop out. Yeah, he when he didn't want to grind through the point, and the point got a little bit hard, and he didn't want to you know fight it out and keep hitting balls. He would just go to the drop shot. The drop shot in my is always for me. Sometimes he uses it well, and a lot of times he uses it poorly. And the poor part is when he he's just copping out of the point. Um, but I found that uh, he would be too um, uh, you know textbook. Uh-huh. Everybody knew. They all knew where he was serving on the first point of the match, of the, of the set, where he was serving on break point. They all know where he's going on, on his ground strokes. They know where, you know where he's going to be hitting the ball most of the time, and everybody knew how to play him. 
And I've been working really, really hard on him trying to make those changes to be a little bit more um, so unreadable, uh, you know, changing the directions and the back end up the line. He hits exceptionally well, but he uses it very irregularly. Uh, the forehand up the line, um, you know, coming in off the second serve return, drive charging a bunch more. Uh, and then especially on the serve, um, varying the serve considerably more, a lot more first serves up the tee to start off games, finish off matches. Uh, I've been working hard on him hitting the serve a lot harder. So there's been a lot of changes, a lot of changes in his game. Mm. Wayne, I have to tell you a quick story. I've played with, I hit with Francis a couple of times when I was at JTCC. And the most memorable one was when he was about 14, 15 years old. And I got him on one of the, the hard true courts uh, at the JTCC. And I, and we have like an hour and a half. And I decided, okay, I'm not going to say anything. We're not doing any drills. We're doing nothing. We're just hitting the ball down the middle. I want to see what his patience is like. So we started hitting. And you know how you get into the slice duel. Some, one player hits the slice. The other guy hits the slice. Now it's on. Now that's on. So after about 30 minutes, we had got one of those slice duels. And I went, and he won the point. And I went, one zero you. He didn't say a word. So, and then we hit another 10 minutes. Then we got into another one. And I went, one, one. And he started, oh, he started understanding what the game was. Just keep the ball in play until that situation happened. He eventually got 2-1, 3-1. And then suddenly he says, forehand's breaking down. And I looked at him and I went straight up to the net and I said, yes, Francis. And you know why? It's because you had a chance two forehands ago to step in and hit a close stance forehand. And if you would have done that, you wouldn't have had to be late on the next one because I was able to step into his first open stance forehand. He looks at me and says, no, 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 no. Sorry, coach. Your forehand is breaking down. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my God, this is a 14-year-old. He's looking at me and worrying about my game. Is that still part of France's game? And you who are so close to it, Wayne, because when I go to the U.S. Open, the game is so quick these days. Yeah. It's very difficult to make tactical choices and to worry about your opponent. But at the same time, Federer, Djokovic, Nadal are so good still because they are worrying about their opponent. How is Francis in that regard? And can you worry about your opponent these days because the game's so much quicker? Well, I do think you need to know what your opponent's strengths and weaknesses are, and you need to try to do that. And I also do think that you need to be very open through the match to be able to see if something is breaking down or is not working that well. I don't think Francis is as good as he could be with that. Uh, I think he focuses a little bit more on what he's doing. You know, if things aren't working well, if the serve's not working well, or if he's missing a few forehands, I am trying to always tell him, uh, you know, to be more aware of what his opponent is doing and what they're doing well or not well. Um, but I don't think it's it's a strength in his game as much as it could be. We're also a little bit able now with this coaching thing to give him some ideas, you know, of what's going on in the match. And we will talk afterwards and I will say to him, Hey, were you aware of the fact that, you know, the forehand was breaking down a little bit and sometimes you'll say yes. And sometimes you'll say no, but if I do tell him in the match or give him a little bit of insight into the match, he can then kind of figure it out. So he's learning, you know, I think a lot of Francis's issues over the years is that he hasn't really been taught as well as he probably could on small little things that mean a lot like that and the investment side and everything. So, you know, he's still learning. I mean, he's 24, which seems old in age, but Francis is quite young mm. in, in a lot of different other ways, and he's still learning a lot. 
Wayne, it's always great to have a guy like yourself who's out there in the heat of the battle, you know, at the, at the highest level right now from a coaching perspective as we move into 2023. And now we see that, you know, Roger has finally hung it up and it doesn't seem like that Rafa and, and Novak are too much further behind, but we see the emergence of Carlos Alcaraz and we see the level of tennis that Yannick Sinner is able to play and Casper Ruud. And as we look forward into 2023, clearly we expect Francis and, and, and Taylor and some of the Americans to be in the mix. But what are, what are your thoughts for what we should expect as tennis fans in terms of what we're going to see in the final weekend of these majors this coming year? Yeah, I think there's going to be a considerable difference on who's going to be around. And you're right about that. I mean, Alcaraz is unbelievable. I mean, he has literally got everything that you need to be, uh, you know, somebody that can beat Nadal and Djokovic and Federer's records over the years if he can stay healthy and, and stay mentally fit. I mean, he's going to be he's going to be the guy, you know. And then you've got the Sinners, Ali Seams, Rublevs. You know, you've still got a bunch of these guys who have been doing relatively well over the last few years, but there's going to be a lot of changes up there. There's a lot more opens, you know, his variable come back. Dominic team will come back, you know, uh, uh, Berrettini. I mean, it's kind of open. It's going to get more towards the nineties uh, where there, you know, there was lots of opportunities for different guys to win slams. And it's going to be kind of fun because it's going to be interesting to see who's the one that's going to be able to get their get their grand slam, under their belt and and what it's going to do for them. So I think we're going to have a lot more changes in this next 10 years than we had over the last 15 years with, with those guys. It's interesting because you, you mentioned a slew of names of great players yet. No mention of Medvedev, no mention of Kyrgios. I know that I'm just saying we would have thought those would have been, but it just shows you how much depth there is with. I'll I'll definitely say Medvedev will definitely be someone who won a grand slam. Kyrgios can, uh, but it depends if he wants to. You know, besides the other, besides the, you know, Djokovic right now, Medvedev's still the guy. Wait, wait what happened? Where you where do you go now, Wayne? I know you're you're at home, but you didn't uh, you didn't make the trip over to Tokyo with Francis. Uh, what's what's on your schedule in the next sort of three or four weeks with Francis? Yeah, so we've, we're finishing off the year. We're going to go to Stockholm next week. Uh, I'm going to you know take your city. Well, you're actually from Vexjö, aren't you? I am from Vexia, but I'll take uh, I'm Stockholm too, certain days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're going to go to Stockholm. I'm going to see my, my good friend Thomas Enquist next week, which I'm excited about. And then uh, we're going to go to Vienna and then finish off in Paris. That's, that's, I mean, Andy, I don't know. I mean, I'm not, by now you must be jealous, Andy, because did you hear those cities? Yes, I am jealous about those cities, Matt. But I think we're about to make Wayne jealous when we say that we're going to be in Missoula, Montana playing alongside the likes of the Jensen brothers and Robert Kendrick and Jesse Witten, Brenda Schultz McCarthy. So we got it going on too, Matt. I mean, you know, Wayne's not yes, the only guy do, who's jet setting around the world. Wayne, <laughs> thank you so much. Hey, congratulations on the success. It is so great to see a kid who is representing not just American tennis, but, but tennis internationally the way he is. And I know having had that South African influence on my career, how important that is. Uh, for for people like yourself to continue to influence our sport the way you have and the way Francis is seeing this play out. It's a, it's a thing of beauty, and we wish you continued success in 23. Yeah, thank you. You know, and I just, for everyone that's out there listening, I just want everyone to know that Francis is truly an amazing kid. He has got the sweetest, kindest heart of anyone out there in the game. He's fun to watch. Uh, if you haven't watched him or haven't really invested your time into watching him, you should because... If he can continue to do what he's doing, he's going to be around a while and he's going to be a fun guy to watch. 
He is the great Wayne Ferreira. On behalf of Matt Zvielander, Johnny Levine, I'm Andy Zoden. This is KickServeRadio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network, and we'll be with you real soon. Thanks so much, everybody, for listening.